regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello everyone, uh, welcome to another episode of Datacast and today I'm speaking with uh, Janice Klaas. He is a data scientist at Quantum Black and also author of the book called Machine Learning for Finance. He previously studied financial economics at Oxford University where he wrote his thesis on the predictability of banking stress test. So Janice, I'm glad to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I want to start out uh, our conversation talking about your educational background. So you uh, got a bachelor degree in uh, international business administration from the Rotterdam School of Management, uh, which is one of the uh, the top ten research-based business school in Europe. So can you uh, briefly describe your undergrad experience? Yeah. So um, I studied business because I learned how to code, kind of self-taught before. So I figured I wouldn't have to go to university to learn that again. And um, business school was really interesting because there's no actual established truth about anything. There's only best practice. Um, So the research essentially is like you try out a number of different approaches to the same problem. You see if there's maybe a statistical difference, but then it's always that what is the different best approach depends so much on the environment and the context. Um, so I really enjoyed my time there because it kind of gave me a lot of room to experiment uh, with business, with data science, with uh, different technologies. So it was it was a really interesting time. And so in college, you were also a researcher at the Institute for Housing and Urban Development Studies. And in particular, you work on um, the uh, something called Global Green City Index. So can you talk about this research in more details? Yeah, exactly. So the Green City Index, um, the idea was to give mayors kind of a tool to be able to quantify just how green their city is and to then also give them actionable tools and insights on how to make their city greener. I worked with Ochinas Brill Hunter, who was the professor working on this index and I was kind of or less as assistant, so I was in charge of the data and the statistics and stuff. So in the in the mayor community, quite a few cities have been using this. Um, so that's quite cool, I think. Uh, and so during your your last year of college, you were involved with uh, the Turing Society in Rotterdam, and in which you you develop a, a new kind of machine learning class called Bletchley Bootcamp for machine learning in financial context. So uh, for the people who are not familiar with the Turing Society. Can you share a brief overview about organization and uh, what was your motivation to teach this class? Yeah, so Turing Society is an organization that aims to 
um, empower people through technology and code. So get them to learn how to code, how to, you know, everything from doing data science to doing website to, you know, whatever they want to do. Um, it was student-founded. It is still student-run. It's in quite a few different countries uh, now with, like, Lithuania and the Netherlands and Mexico and, like, different places. Uh, so it's a great organization and... Um, I was kind of involved in the activities and then they asked me to make this course. Yeah, that is kind of how it all got started. Uh, y Financial Contact is, of course, Erasmus University is a pretty business and economics heavy place. Uh, so most people already knew kind of finance and we wanted them to take that knowledge and then enhance it with machine learning kind of. That was the idea. Uh, based on my research of the, the cost, uh, it teach machine learning for finance from uh, completely new materials, right? So how, how did you go about building these this materials, preparing for the lectures with the assignment and even finding uh, guest lecturers? The reason why we like completely the materials was that at the time there weren't all that many great kind of hands-on courses that would make use of what people already knew about statistics and like these specific strengths and weaknesses that our audience kind of had. And so we, we kind of had to make something new to make it really fitting for that audience. The way it kind of, it was a bit of a mad scramble. <laughs> I wrote the materials just like in Jupyter notebooks. Um, and the scramble was always to get them ready in time for the next class. And I had like a group of, of a few people helping me um, that would kind of review it, make sure it would actually run and help debug it. And there was also kind of a group of people that was really well connected um, in the industry and that would help us with guest speakers. So we, you know, we had folks from Google coming, we had folks from, from this hedge fund or this yeah, financial service company called Robeco uh, coming. Um, so, you know, that was all arranged through our network around that. So I was, I was lucky to have a good team on that one. Fantastic, yeah, and I'm sure you you uh, develop a very solid teaching experience from from. from I hope so. I hope yeah. so. People liked it. Some people, some people now are like full time data scientists that took that. That's really good. Cool. Yeah, it's yeah. really awesome to to see the fruit of your commitment, right? So, can you talk more about your decision to uh, pursue a master degree in financial economics at the said business school, which is part of Oxford University? After kind of my undergrad, I wanted to do something more quantitative in my further studies. And financial economics is a quantitative finance field that is also very heavy on theory. So it's it's different than just a pure finance master. We do not actually really care that much about the financial practice, like which bank does what, um, but much more about how do markets work how do scarce resources get allocated? Um, and I think that's a really fascinating topic. And uh, then when I get the opportunity to go to Oxford for that, I thought, um, hey, <laughs> why not do that? Um, that sounds like a fun thing to do. And it was a really, really good time, and I learned a lot. Um, that was quite important for me. So did you already finish with, with uh, business school, uh, with, with your master's degree, or are you still in school? No, I, I graduated a few months ago and I yeah, started working afterwards, so I'm done now. Awesome. So what were some of the most interesting graduate courses that you took at, uh, at Oxford? I think the single most interesting one is a course called Information and Communication and Finance. 
I think is a bit of a misnomer. Like the content of the class was that if you have an agent communicating, it's a, it's a game theoretical setting usually, and you have people communicating, and they have different interests. Um, will these people tell the truth? Will they flat out lie? Uh, will they tell some version of the truth? You know, it was a lot about the mechanism design. How can we incentivize uh, maybe financial analysts to actually report their true belief of, of the stock? And it's, it's, very, um, it's a very quantitative approach. So it was all done in a kind of a Bayesian setting where you would, you know, people had beliefs and they updated in the Bayesian methods their beliefs. And so the idea was always to provide them with the information that would make them update their beliefs in a way that they would take an action and that would be optimal for the person who sent the message in the first place. Um, and there, there's a lot of stuff that goes on once you start studying that. The first thing that was most interesting for me is the insight that markets can never actually be uh, efficient because um, someone has to process all the information that makes them efficient, right? Like someone has to actually research the companies and stuff, and that is expensive. So if markets are per perfectly efficient, nobody will do that because there is no profit in it, and then the market will be inefficient again. So the market cannot never be perfectly efficient. Another interesting insight was that even if you have a field with like perfectly rational people in the market that are indefinitely intelligent, that have like basically all information, mm -hmm. you can still have bubbles and, like, and financial crises and weird stuff where people often think, oh, you know, irrational traders and so on. But no, you can actually have that with like perfectly rational, perfectly intelligent people. That's actually very interesting to me because I'm, I'm like, I think I'm, I'm set up for like a classes in like multi-agent system next semester. So I'm, I'm very excited to kind of learn all about, I guess, that intersection of, you know, game theory and, 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 and artificial intelligence, like like you yeah. mentioned, some of that stuff. There's a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, it's essentially bringing some of the, uh, the the theoretical stuff from like behavioral economics, behavioral psychology, right? I mean, the point, in that, the point in that class was that you didn't need to make those behavioral adjustments, but that even perfectly rational people mm -hmm. would behave irrationally. Um, so it wasn't really a behavioral finance class, uh, much more yeah, just like showing how information flows through a market. During your time in business school, you also involved with um, the Oxford Artificial Intelligence Society, which provides a platform to educate, build, connect and employ an uh, AI community that constantly drives innovation for the university. So uh, you were actually part of the education team, which is responsible for organizing and teaching classes that help students advance in AI. So can you talk more about this uh, initiative? Yeah, so OpsAI kind of tries to bring uh, researchers and students uh, from the different departments in Oxford together that all kind of work on AI in one capacity or another, tries to kind of be the hub for all of them. I was very lucky to get involved with them. It was actually one of the reasons maybe of coming to Oxford was to see that there was such a strong AI research community there. Mm -hmm. So I was happy to kind of be in the center of that. The, the courses group, the education group, um, we organized uh, these classes about once a term, maybe like a three or four week class or something where we taught uh, deep learning or uh, Bayesian inference or different technical topics. 
we also have one class on AI ethics and, and, and you know, students and faculty and whoever liked uh, could just come and uh, learn something. And um, that, was, that was kind of a big part of my activities there. And it was really cool because I spent a lot of time with people from different fields, like maybe people who were physicists by training and now, you know, did a PhD in statistics or something. And um, I learned a lot from them and we did this thing together, which was really great. I'm just kind of curious, you know, what are some of the popular research in AI that come out from Promosphere? Oof, there's a lot. A lot coming out. I don't really know what like to call the popular research coming out. I think like what attracted a lot of attention is the work coming out of the Oxford Internet Institute. They're kind of a multidisciplinary group that looks often at social science problems uh, with a kind of a data science lens. And they did a lot on fairness, privacy, discrimination, all these topics around AI that um, attracted a lot of attention in kind of policy circles. So that is something I would highlight. Uh, but then, of course, there's also kind of on the more technical side, there's just like so much coming out there that it's hard to highlight, you know, what's what's the most important ones. Um, but there's, lot, there's many different groups doing really, really amazing work. Uh, the statistics department is kind of working on enhancing the more classical statistical methods with kind of a deep learning, machine learning methods, make them more flexible and extend them. So there's just a lot going on. Given your background in like economics and just the opportunity to, to kind of bring that background and, and contribute to to the conversation around AIs. I'm just kind of curious, like in your opinion, what were some of the challenges of like conversing with people from different fields and try to, to have a fruitful conversation around AI? What were some of the biggest challenges of doing so? Actually, in all honesty, I think the biggest challenge was that people are super busy and it's hard to kind of find overlapping time spots where you can actually meet and catch up. That was that was like people, people work really hard and, you know, uh, so it's hard to actually find like common times in the schedule on the conversation time area i feel that many people actually get pretty good at conversing across field boundaries so as long as you kind of speak the basic vocabulary of statistics and machine learning this vocabulary is pretty uniform across the different fields and so i didn't have much trouble uh, talking to people about about their work yeah, I mean, unless you try to dig into incredibly deep and see some really specific issues that you just don't know about because it isn't your field, um, people get really good at these like cross-boundary conversations. So you have been working at Quantum Black, which is a McKinsey company, for close to uh, two months now. Um, for the people who are not familiar with Quantum Black, can you uh, keep a brief overview about the company? as well as a couple of interesting projects that you have been involved with? Um, Quantum Black is what is called an advanced analytics consultancy, uh, which means that um, our clients usually have incredibly tricky problems um, that can be addressed with data science and machine learning and design often and, and you know, some combination. It was acquired by McKinsey about four years ago, 
um, now is, is still kind of its own company, but very much part of McKinsey. And so that we, we work with clients in almost every industry to help them solve kind of specific problems that they have uh, through data science. So I think an interesting example is from Formula One. So the company, especially in its early days, did a lot of Formula One. And there they do things like helping helping Formula One race teams optimize the pit stop, you know, through uh, telemetry, through better recognition, through um, all kinds of optimization techniques. Um, they did a lot on that, and, and then it, it effectively helps the, the Formula One team win the race. Um, but we also have completely different tasks. So we have a lot of projects around the pharma industry where we help optimize clinical trials. You know, it's, it's just incredibly broad, but wherever there's like a complicated problem that can be addressed with data science, that might be for us. What attracted you, you know, about Quantum Black that compelled you to join the company? Really the diversity of tasks. So I've been around finance for a while and, you know, it's especially trading as a fairly straightforward problem where you optimize around on the margins while at quantum black you know one day you work on on racing the next day you work on banking the next day you work on pharma so it's it's a much bigger breadth of problems and much more rich and interesting i think and that kind of attracted me okay so uh, let's move on to talk about your book machine for finance so the book introduced the study of machine learning and deep learning algorithms for financial practitioners, what is your motivation for authoring this book, and uh, who would benefit the most from from reading it? The book is it's targeted at people who have some understanding of the financial industry, who are not necessarily familiar with machine learning algorithms, and who wish to kind of learn about these algorithms. It is not about trading, so it's not only like stock markets and stuff like that. Um, but also insurance and you know, fraud and what have you. It's, I guess, like a book for people who are relatively new to AI but have a relatively good understanding of their area of finance already. Yeah, definitely, because when I'm reading through the book, obviously you try to, you have, you have a lot of um, explanation from first principle, right? Instead of like uh, starting out from an application, so uh, going from essentially uh, from, from bottom to the top. Obviously, you have already have a specific audience group in mind, which which is making it easier for you to connect with them. So you mentioned that the material from the book uh, came from your class at Rotterdam. Uh, can you go over some the logistic aspect of writing this book? I know that you uh, you work with Pact in order to to publish it, but like, what was sort of like the the, the logistic and methodological process of actually you know get get the book out to the public? Yeah. Yeah, so when we started the process of writing the book, we made a rough outline, kind of, you know, basically the chapters and what should be roughly be covered in each chapter. Then I sat down and kind of sequentially wrote the individual chapters, and uh, I wrote them mostly in Jupyter notebooks. So I would write the text, and I would first write the code that would kind of be the, the central you know, example of the chapter and then write the explanation and description around it. And then I would turn all of that into a markdown file and then send that to the publisher 
and they would, you know, turn it into their format. Uh, they have the specific word layout that they need. Then we would go from there, and then there would be kind of the second round where, you know, there would be reviews, and you were involved in that, um, where we would then kind of look through it and make sure everything was good and maybe revise a few things. So in the review process, for instance, we kicked out an entire chapter. We, like, merged that into something else, and you do some reviews and some brushing up, and then eventually you get to the point where you have kind of a finished product, and then um, you get into the printing and marketing process, which mm-hmm. uh, Pact handled for me, so I wasn't really involved in that. What, what do you think is, like, your... Uh, the the biggest hurdle of like actually like writing a book and getting it out to the market? So, I mean, just writing the book by itself and writing a good book just takes a lot of time. That's, I guess, for most people what keeps them from doing it. And the second thing is that you, it's hard to scope the book. So we wanted something that was kind of accessible to, you know, a broad audience um, of people that weren't experts in the field already. But then again, you know that your book is going to be read by people who are already doing this, who are like quants or who are, you know, work at big funds and they also want to get something out of it. So you need to keep kind of nuggets there for these people and while at the same time not scaring away the, the folks that are new to this, kind of finding the right balance there and the, and the skill level required is also quite tricky. And then you need to find good examples. The industry can be quite black box. Usually people don't really like to talk about um, mm-hmm. this stuff in detail. You know, finding finding really good use cases can be kind of challenging. So let's let's talk about a couple of the, uh, the chapter in more details so uh, we, we can go over the content of the book. Chapter 4, which is called Understanding Time Series. Look, look at a wide range of conventional tools for dealing with time series data you know, including things like um, one-dimension convolution and recurrent architectures, and and in particular, the readers work on a problem of forecasting web traffic for Wikipedia. Can you recommend a couple of um, other books or you know online resources for people who are new to time series forecasting? Yes. Yeah, so the traditional econometrics literature is really rich on all things time series, right? They've <laughs> they've been doing that for decades. So if someone like wants a little bit more classical approach to time series, there's a lot of really good books on time series econometrics. A little bit depending on your flavor, there there's a number of textbooks. There's one kind of summary, not really a book, but like a summary text by Cochrane at the University of Chicago. He's like a fairly famous econometrician. I would perhaps recommend that. It like, covers a lot of the armor models that are quite common classical econometrics. Yeah, and then for the neural stuff, there isn't yet really a single summary book on neural time series forecasting, so in that case you would have to read papers. Chapter 5 called uh, Passing Textual Data with NLP introduced the readers to many different natural language processing techniques, you know, like name entity recognition using techniques like backup words and TF-IDF for classification, topic modeling, sentence translation, and many more. How do you personally keep up to date with this booming NLP research area? So, Twitter. Yeah, so essentially my strategy is just to follow people that work in this field. 
on Twitter and see what they're tweeting about. If it's kind of a big new approach, they will I will definitely notice. It means I can only kind of keep tabs on the rough trends. And if I work on a more specific use case, um, then I would have to do kind of a proper literature research because the NLP gets so big that it's no longer possible to keep up with all of it. Mm-hmm. So you kind of need to pick your battles and you know stay in the area that you particularly know. But for the big stuff, like when the BERT model came out, that was, of course, like something that was really across mm-hmm. kind of all of NLP and it was kind of all over NLP Twitter. So I, I learned it there. You, have you seen like a lot of NLP application in real-time financial products? Yeah, so NLP is a really popular one since most kind of high-value information that human market participants or human humans at kind of financial institutions consume is text. So in kind of the financial markets area, it, it's definitely something that kind of the more advanced quantitative firms work with to get some signal out of tax data but also for banks since banking has become basically an e-commerce business awesome yeah thanks for sharing your that opinion in chapter six which is called using generative models you explain how these generative models generate new data and uh, incorporate projects that use you know variational autoencoders and uh, generative adversarial networks for fraud detection so uh, besides detecting fraud, what are the use cases of uh, this model in finance that uh, capture your interest? So there's two, I would say. The first is also mentioned in the book. It's small, small-ish data problems where you uh, want to do maybe semi-supervised learnings uh, because you don't have enough labeled data. And there's there's been a lot being done there. And works fairly stably now and I think that's kind of really interesting. The other area that I find interesting is uh, generating realistic time series that exhibit uh, properties that we see in real financial data because I think that might be able to guide us towards an understanding of asset pricing and might be relevant one day to proper asset pricing theory. Uh, there's this paper, it's called QuantGAN that does exactly that. Uh, I think it's quite interesting. It's quite recent. Yeah, I would read that. I think it's quite interesting. I'll be sure to include that paper into the show notes so people can have a chance to, to take a look at that. And yet, uh, to your point earlier, obviously, like, uh, try to generate uh, synthetic data is, is definitely critical, especially for, let's say, small enterprise who doesn't have a lot of data from their product or users. It's, it's necessary to use some of these techniques, uh, one shot and your shot learning. Also for big enterprises because the labeling effort can just be incredibly expensive and if you uh, if you can do it without labels or with fewer labels, mm. then you might be much better off. Um, so it's really kind of an interesting and emerging field, I think. Uh, so in Chapter 7, Reinforcement Learning for Financial Markets, you discussed the underlying theory for several reinforcement learning algorithms, uh, as well as their connections to economics. And then in the chapter, the readers can also walk through um, practical examples of how they can, uh, how reinforcement learning can be used to directly inform uh, portfolio formation. So uh, what other applications of reinforcement learning in finance that you are excited about? Private equity. So private equity is kind of a growing area in finance anyhow. 
And I've seen some cool firms applying kind of machine learning slash reinforcement learning techniques to optimize infrastructure like oil fields or airports or what have you. And so what they do is they go and they buy an oil field or they buy a few oil rigs or, you know, like an airport or something. And they use like techniques that are similar to RL to drive efficiencies, to reduce costs. That is kind of their value proposition. So MPE, you often try to generate some actual value for the business, and this is kind of a cool way to do it. And then they, they resell the company or they keep it in their portfolio, kind of depending on their strategy. Um, so this is something that I find really, really interesting, where I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Any techniques in reinforcement learning that, that is being used very widely in the industry that you notice? I don't know. I think most people just do Q-learning because it works relatively well. Yeah, I rarely ever see someone venturing out and do something slightly more complicated, but like Q-learning and policy optimization mm -hmm. plus some kind of efficient exploration uh, often comes in. So because exploration can be extremely costly. Right. Um, so... Yeah, that's often a concern. And then you come back to more classical research on multi-amp bandits and stuff. Yeah, but like basically it's like Q-learning and a lot of attention to um, to exploration. That's that's a big topic, kind of. That process can be very computationally expensive, right? And then no, not only computationally expensive. It might mean you... So imagine you, you run an oil rig and... You know, you need to change actual things on the rig to try out. If, if like, you cannot do it in a computer, you need to change actual things on the rig. Okay. Or you might need to actually change your marketing strategy or something. Mm -hmm. And that can mean, like, literally millions and millions of costs for, like, single experiments. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's not the computational expense. It's, it's actual expense. And that is, that is where it gets kind of interesting. So, so what, what do you think are some of the potential, I guess, like solution or any proposal to address some of those, uh, you know, very practical issue? Yeah, I think we're going to see more kind of interest in doing exploration, not like in a random way, like it's often being done now, but to pick kind of an action that would help us learn a lot, like that would have a high learning value, but that would also have a relatively low expected cost. Um, to have kind of maximize the return on the, the investment for this exploration step. So I think uh, this is something that we're going to see more interest in. Is there, is there any particular research organization or like companies that are kind of well-known for, for this sort of reinforcement learning application that uh, you're being aware of? I wouldn't know a single, a single organization that works on that kind of specifically. I mean... All the big kind of reinforcement learning heavy research organizations have an interest in that. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a broad field, so there's no one single organization that does that specifically. Great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm learning a lot. You know, this is definitely new to me because I'm getting exposed to reinforcement learning not too long ago. And then it's just definitely very fascinating. And uh, the, the, the vast potential application is, is so huge. So I do definitely try to learn more about it. So in Chapter 8, which is called Privacy, Debugging and Launching Your Products, you um, the, you expose the readers to uh, a substantial numbers of tools to run practical machine learning projects and deploy them in real life applications. So, what are a couple of resources 
uh, that you would recommend for people who want to learn more about some of the best practices of motor deployment? I think there's been there's a lot of work being done in that field more and more. Um, I think a really interesting group is the ML flow um, kind of group. So that's that's a tool to deploy and monitor models. And I think they have a lot of really interesting stuff going on. So this is kind of like a an area I would look at. Um, ML flow. Yeah, it's it's both like a software as well as kind of a, a group that's working on this. So this is, I think, quite interesting. If, if you want to learn more about kind of the deployment, I think it really helps to just deploy something. Like, even if it's just a small project, I would definitely encourage to try to people, like, if they do the cats versus dog classifier, mm-hmm. to just, you know, set up a Flask server and try to host the model and then see what happens. Um, so learning by doing in that field is definitely underappreciated. And there's increasingly kind of a few kind of software packages and vendors addressing that problem. You know, for any, like, you know, I'd say a student or like a data scientist, say working on a project and then say like build an app and try to uh, put it on a server, right? Uh, just yeah. so you can see the yeah. end-to-end pipeline of how the models actually interact with the data in real time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Just to see, you know, like expose it by an API, maybe build a little smartphone app or something and hmm. share it with friends. I think that's that's a good way to learn. Interesting. This is definitely a, one one of those things that, you know, they didn't teach you in tutorials or like in school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like taking an active learning approach to everything is... Uh, is definitely superior over just reading about it. In chapter nine, which is called Fighting Bias, you, you look at uh, how machine learning models can learn uh, unfair policies and even break anti-discrimination laws. And we actually talk about uh, this earlier in our conversation, right? Uh, in terms of the research coming from our, our Oxford. But uh, what what are the you know recent research of ethics and fairness in machine learning that uh, really captures your attention? interesting is that people starting to look at if even like an ad algorithm like an ad display algorithm might be illegally discriminating and there like i want to highlight kind of a specific paper from the oxford internet institute from sandra wachter she um, wrote this paper on uh, affinity profiling if you discriminate based on certain features and maybe ad targeting and so on you might be uh, discriminating people by their association to some something else. So, for instance, you might think that, let's say, people that enjoy a certain sport also happen to be a certain demographic, and maybe that demographic is poor. Let's just think of that, right? Mm. And then, because you like the sport and maybe you like a few pages on Facebook, Facebook would uh, estimate your income to be lower because by association, you're kind of, you know, statistically correlated with this lower income group. And then they might use that information and not show you ads for, for houses, for instance. You know, they might not show you ads to buy a house. And this could be seen as discrimination. It's like a, it's legally unclear, it's technically unclear, um, but it's a really interesting area uh, where a lot is a lot is going on. So I would like to draw attention to that. 
And in the book, you, you talk a little bit about machine explainability, which is one of those re- research areas that is also uh, really been advocated uh, with like conference, also papers coming out. So that uh, the issue only growing stronger and stronger. And definitely it requires expertise from a variety of functional domain expertise. And so like not only people coming from tech, but also legal and, and even just, uh, anthropology and philosophy, right? And those, and um, I guess that incorporation of ideas is, is what we need at fighting uh, AI bias. Yeah, I think it's one of those problems that cannot simply be solved with an algorithm, um, but that like requires both technology and people and processes to work together in concert, and that's kind of a really f- rich facet of problems. So it's quite. So looking back at your background, you have a financial econ background, uh, and then you branched into data science. How do you think that background in economics helped you being a better data scientist? I think, so what I appreciate most about my econ education is that it helps me kind of seeing how you go from theoretical model to observing practical data and then going back and validating and evaluating your model. Um, This kind of back and forth is really interesting and uh, I think that kind of benefits me. Plus, you get kind of good at mapping the technical approach to the business problem that people really care about mm-hmm. and that also helps you to work faster and more effectively. A lot of um, data scientists coming from technical background without too much of a uh, attention to for, for the business problem and having that sort of awareness on the value of, of your model really separate you from, from the rest of the pack, right? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, I mean like data science is such a multifaceted field, um, but getting the right, all these different um, ideas and backgrounds and being able to assimilate them is quite valuable. So lastly, can you share your thoughts regarding the technologies and data science community in uh, London? Yeah, so London has a really great tech community, I think. There's a lot of startups, there's a lot of academia, so we have a number of universities, great researchers. You know, it's just like a place where a lot is happening, which is really exciting. It's also quite accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, so many, you know, many firms and many people are open to outreach and they, they do meetups and stuff. Um, so I think it's a great community and a great place for kind of tech and data science. Do, do you personally like go to a lot of meetups and, and network with other people? I must admit I haven't gone to as many meetups recently as I would like to, simply because I've been busy. But yeah, usually I go a lot to meetups, yeah. Awesome. So the first question is like, what are some of the companies which are doing exceptional data science work that you really admire? In finance, that would definitely be Two Sigma. I know no other company that there's data science and finance that well. I think they're they're really strong. In other areas, there's like a lot of smaller startups that I really admire, even without knowing them too deeply on the inside. So I quite admire uh, many biotech startups that use AI for medicine, like Benevolent AI, for instance, uh, seems to be doing incredible work. Um, so those those are kind of some to highlight, I guess. Um, there's a lot of really cool smaller companies that I've just never heard of that are out there, so I don't want to kind of limit it too much. Um, the second question is, what is one book that you would recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset? 
I guess it would be computer age statistical inference um, is a really, really good one. Um, it takes a lot of like neural machine learning algorithm and looks at the inference part of it on a more like accessible side I like the signal and the noise which is you know it's more a popular science book uh, which is quite accessible but uh, really teaches kind of the few of the fundamental ideas of kind of statistics and data science last question is that imagine that you could send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on twitter what could you tweet about actually you know i think that most people like that Aspiring data scientists have a pretty long journey ahead of them um, because it's it's a field where where the learning curve in can be quite steep. So I guess I would mostly tweet that they're doing really well just for being on that journey already, and that they uh, should should stick to it even through the hard times. Maybe <laughs> if that makes sense. Awesome. Yeah, having that uh, that growth mindset and and the, and the grit. It's very important, essentially for anything, but especially for this new field, which is uh, have a lot of complexity and high barrier. Yeah, exactly. And, exactly. Right, Janus. Thanks a lot for being on my podcast. I really enjoy learning about your background, some of your advice on the specific technical aspect of machine learning for finance, about your process of writing a book, and various other resources that uh, we talk about. I would uh, include all of that in the show notes so people can can learn more about them and. Uh, Yeah, definitely. Uh, I would uh, put machine learning for finance and then recommend that for my friends who want to learn more about some of the application of this view in financial domain industry. So thanks a lot for having this chat. Thanks a lot, James. Thanks a lot. Please let me know if you need anything before finishing up the episode. Really happy to chat. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.